0: Greetings, sapient being. Welcome aboard the Starship Alexandria. Prepare for the user podcast. (laughs) Greetings, and welcome back aboard the Starship Alexandria. You know, you might be wondering why the Starship is named Alexandria after a city on old Earth. As you might have guessed, based upon our studies, it's not named after the city, but what was once housed in that city, the Library of Alexandria or the great library, as it was known to the ancient, though smarter than we give them credit for peoples of the third century BCE, as well as to those even beyond its destruction in the third century CE. It was a universal library holding all of the knowledge that humanity as a species had collected up to that time. The great library was a remarkable achievement that while there were other universal libraries at the time, such as in Pergamum has few peers, even to this day. The loss of knowledge, discoveries that had been made, history that had been written down, is veritably incalculable. And though some fragments have been rescued because of the Great Library in Alexandria's destruction, humanity is ultimately a species with a seemingly irreversible case of amnesia. While we may have some idea of how we evolved into the bipedal brain case we see in the mirror every morning, we have scant and often wildly varying details as to where human achievement and civilization began. Not that I'm suggesting those are interrelated. In this episode of the User Podcast, we'll begin to discuss some of those possible origins, how we got from there to here. While Alfred Russell Wallace's theory of evolution, which, to be clear, is a scientific fact and not theoretical, answers many of the questions of how we biologically arrived at our present state the how and when the whole human enterprise began in a broader sense how we invented writing the first towns agriculture and so on remains much up to debate perhaps the most famous story that we still have of how this whole human enterprise began is the biblical tale of the garden of eden while generally considered a myth among scholars The popularity of the concept of the Garden of Eden pervades, and despite massive evidence to the contrary, to some it is still considered historical fact as presented in the Christian Bible. The story goes something like this. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth. And every plant of the field before it sprung up in the earth and every herb of the ground before it grew. For the Lord God had not rained upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the earth. But a spring rose out of the earth, watering all the surface of the earth. And the Lord God formed man of the slime of the earth, and breathed into his face the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God had planted a paradise of pleasure from the beginning, Wherein he placed man, whom he had formed, and the Lord God brought forth of the ground all manner of trees fair to behold and pleasant to eat of, the tree of life also in the midst of paradise, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of the place of pleasure to water paradise, which from thence is divided into four heads. The name of the one is Pishah, that is it which compasseth all the land of Havilah, where gold. And the gold of that land is very good. There is found Delium in the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same is it that compasseth all the land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Tigris, same passeth along by the Assyrians. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took man and put him into the paradise of pleasure to dress it and to keep it. And he commanded him saying, of every tree of paradise thou shalt eat but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat for in what day soever thou shalt eat of it thou shalt die the death Now, all of this supposedly happened in 4010 BCE, that's 4010 BCE. And without getting into the conversation of why didn't Adam and Eve die the instant they ate the fruit, like God said they would, it's important to note that this date is used by many Christians, particularly by what are known as young earth creationists but it's a date that comes from the Hebrew calendar because the garden of Eden is a story shared by both Jews and Christians and to varying degrees by other Abrahamic faiths. What's important to note about this date, which starts at the end of the supposed literal seven days of creation from Genesis chapter one, but again coming from Jewish interpretation is that rabbinic Judaism itself has declared for centuries that the seven days of creation could not be literal. The date of 4010 BCE begins essentially from the time that Adam was created and not before. The rabbis realized what we've discussed in previous episodes of the User Podcast. Since there was no sun or moon until day four of the supposed seven days of creation, it's impossible for them to be literal 24-hour time periods. The seven days of creation is, at the very least, a metaphor. But is it anything more? Without getting into an entire history of Torah, or what is also known as the Tanakh, or what Christians call the Old Testament, a worthy subject for another time, let's further discuss the literalness of this compilation of ancient texts, or more accurately, the lack thereof. First, let's go to one of the most revered students and commentators of the Tanakh itself, Rabbi Abraham Ezra of the 12th century CE a man who even has a crater on Earth's moon named after him, the crater Abin Abenezra is considered not only one of the greatest biblical scholars and religious philosophers of all time, even beyond rabbinic Judaism. Interestingly, even the rebellious Spinoza revered him, but he was well known for his literalness of interpretation of the Tanakh itself, steering clear of rabbinical allegory and Kabbalistic mystical interpretations if anyone was going to take the book of genesis seriously and literally it was going to be him but that's the funny thing with abenezra he doesn't even believe that moses wrote the pentateuch the first five books of the bible which the book of genesis belongs to even centuries ago he believed that they were written or redacted by someone else due to many of the inconsistencies in the book of deuteronomy in comparison to the earlier books of the pentateuch Granted, a few inconsistencies does not necessarily an argument make, but does the Tanakh itself bolster Abenezra's claim directly in any way? Well, as a matter of fact, it does. In the Tanakh, there's a story in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22, that tells a fascinating story the story of a king and a priest. It's the 7th century BCE in the kingdom of Judah its 16th King, King Josiah was considered a righteous man. And according to the ancient text, he is responsible for a veritable Renaissance religious and otherwise among his people, the Jews. This is the time just before what is known as the Babylonian exile. When in 605 BCE King Nebuchadnezzar, II of the Neo Babylonian empire conquered the ancient kingdom of Judah and left the city of Jerusalem, utterly ransacked and destroyed. Taking first the Jewish nobility to Babylon, the Babylonians eventually took most of the Jewish people there as well to become servants of the empire. But not too many years before then, the religious renaissance of King Josiah was in full swing, mainly from his edict to refurbish the temple of his ancestors, the Temple of Solomon. You see, according to the Book of Second Kings, Josiah's grandfather, King Manasseh, as well as his father, King Ammon, would begin allowing foreign cults to practice in the kingdom gods like baal or the goddess ashara were allowed to be worshipped in the temple and even the popular and widespread assyrian astral cult was promoted throughout the kingdom the assyrian empire being a powerful force in the area at the time having recently conquered judah's northern neighbor the kingdom of israel all of this led to a certain. Decadence of Jewish religious practice, causing a widespread forgetfulness of Torah, a lack of worship for the Hebrew God, and a temple in practical ruins from the orgies, sacrifices, and overall fervor of more lively foreign worship than the temple was designed for. Commentators, and even the text itself, suggest that this led to the massive economic and quality of life downturn in the once prosperous Jewish nation. King Josiah's rejection of the practices of his father and grandfather's kingship was meant to be a return to the kingdom of Judah's former glory economically. And for the overall happiness of the kingdom, it seemed to be working. And then supposedly in 622 BCE, something remarkable was discovered during Josiah's reformation. The high priest at the time, a man named Hilkiah was going through the rubble and renovations of the temple of Solomon and discovered a book but not just any book, the book of the law. Second Kings chapter 22 describes it happening this way. And Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought him word again concerning that which he had commanded and said, thy servants have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord And they have given it to be distributed to the workmen by the overseers of the works of the temple of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered to me a book. And when Shaphan had read it before the king, and the king had heard the words of the law of the Lord, he rent his garments. And he commanded Hilkiah the priest, saying, Go and consult the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book which is found. For the great wrath of the Lord is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened to the words of this book to do all that is written for us. It's important to note that we know for a fact that the high priest Hilkiah existed, and at this time in the 7th century BCE. There is contemporary extra-biblical evidence that points out Hilkiah's name and position this same amount of evidence can rarely be claimed for biblical figures, including the likes of King David, Jesus, or King Josiah himself. What of the identity of this book of the law that was found? And why did King Josiah react so strongly to its reading? Rabbis and scholars have long believed that the book Hilkiah found was none other than the book of Deuteronomy from Torah. If you were to find a book of the Hebrew faith, it's probably the best one you could find. It retells much of the Exodus, gives a fairly full account of the life of Moses has a recitation of the 10 commandments and confirms the supposed right of the Jewish people to live in the land of milk and honey, Jerusalem itself. King Josiah reacted so strongly to its reading because, in his supposed own words, he realized his kingdom was doing it all wrong. We don't know exactly for how long the ancient Judeans were without Torah, but it's abundantly clear from their own texts the Jews had lost it, forgotten it, weren't living it, only to fortunately, apparently, rediscover it. I say apparently, because today some scholars suggest that Hilkiah and his priesthood, either in concert with the king or without him, invented the book of Deuteronomy or Torah in its entirety. But we should also note here that Hilkiah only found one book. There's no mention of the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus or Numbers. It's easy to argue that if King Josiah were remotely familiar with any of those books as we know them today, he wouldn't have had such a powerful reaction to the words read to him from this book of the law, supposedly found by Hilkiah. In fact, as you go through the rest of the Bible's record of Jewish history, it's amazing how little the events of the book of Genesis are mentioned. Actually they're not mentioned at all. It's proposed that there may be two literally only two allusions to the garden of Eden, but that's all it's again, potentially alluded to. Adam homo perfectus himself, is never discussed or looked to for inspiration in the rest of the Jewish scriptures. It's almost as if he or Noah or Enoch or any of these characters that had such a personal relationship with the Hebrew God weren't known of or had yet to even be thought up yet at the time of the kingdom of Judah. Abraham Aben Ezra's theory that the Book of Deuteronomy didn't seem to fit in with the rest of Torah seems to have been well founded, and his near heretical questioning of the true source and authorship of the supposed books of Moses was the matter of a proud rabbi having contracted a case of intellectual honesty. To be clear, I'm not suggesting, and nor was Aben Ezra, that the entirety of the Tanakh is a fiction. In fact, I think there are quite literal real events in history that happened that are recorded in it. I also believe that there is a purpose to every single Hebrew letter recorded in those ancient texts. Regardless of authorship or origin, the Tanakh is a beautiful book, an important book, but it's also a vastly misunderstood one. Trying to figure out whether or not Hilkiah invented the book of Deuteronomy or the book of the law that he found is a subject best for another time. But if Aben Ezra's suspicions are true, and the earlier works of Torah were redacted from another source, what is the source? The answer might not be too far away from the time of Hilkiah himself. Only decades later, the Neo-Babylonian Empire would become the ruling force in the area under King Nebuchadnezzar II. As we mentioned before, the Babylonian exile would find most of the Jewish people in a new land, with new customs. But, interestingly enough, old ideas. You see, the Babylonians of that time were the descendants of none other than the Sumerians, long considered the oldest human civilization that we have extensive record of, or at least certainly more ancient than any of the civilizations we've discussed thus far, and we can get into a discussion around Gobekli Tepe later. The culture of Sumer is a massive subject in itself, but to discuss it for our purposes here, if there were any miracles in life, the astonishing amount of writings we have left from Sumerian culture would rank among them, with many of these writings coming to us from at least as early as 3500 BCE. Of course, part of the reason we still have many of the writings and myths from Sumer is because Sumerian heritage would last well into the 3rd century CE, and it's arguable that many empires in the area would simply copy and paste or absorb much of Sumerian culture into their own, or declare it as their own, much like ancient Rome took its pantheon of gods from the ancient Greeks. And that points to what Aben Ezra may have picked up on. For example, The Sumerian origin stories are some of the most descriptive and oldest origin stories we have, and would even well predate the time when Moses could have written the autographs of Torah, if he even did. These origin stories all sound awfully familiar, too, for those that know some of the stories in Genesis. There's a great flood, a paradise garden, a tree of life, the Tower of Babel, and so on. In fact, as far as the Garden of Eden is concerned, the word Eden itself likely comes from the Sumerian original that being Eden with an I, which means area of flat terrain. Not only that, but the term for man or the first man in the Sumerian creation myths is none other than Adamu, a precursor to Adam. And that's just it. The Sumerian myths, which would later become Babylonian myths, even down to the Neo Babylonian empire thousands of years later, All read like a precursor to what we now know as the creation stories of the book of Genesis. Is this how the rabbis filled in the blanks about their origins, which the book of the law that Hilkiah found, or perhaps wrote himself, had no commentary on? Does this answer Aben Ezra's and Spinoza's questions about where the information in early books of Torah came from? Think we're speculating too far? We don't have to speculate. To some degree, we know for a fact that Judaism absorbing elements of Babylonian practices already happened. Take for example, Rosh Hashanah, what is now celebrated as the Jewish New Year, generally happening in the month of September of the Gregorian calendar. It's a day that Jews today know how to celebrate based on a verse in Leviticus and later rabbinical expansion. But the term Rosh Hashanah itself is not in Leviticus. It's only to be found in the book of Ezekiel, there, it's only used once and has nothing to do with the Jewish new year, nor is what's described in Leviticus a new year celebration. How Rosh Hashanah, the first of rabbinic Judaism's high holidays in a year, came into being was that the Judeans in Babylon, well, did as the Babylonians did. They saw the Babylonians celebrating their new year, again in September generally, which for the Babylonians was based on an economic agricultural cycle, and the Judeans basically wanted one of their own. So they took a type of celebration they had written down and applied it to the Babylonian new year, creating Rosh Hashanah. You might think I'm making a controversial statement here, but I'm not. The Babylonian new year being absorbed into rabbinic Judaism is well documented and known by its own practitioners today. Not uninterestingly. Rosh Hashanah is also declared as the celebration of the creation of Adam and Eve, their birthday, as it were. And its very concepts of forgiveness are based around the Adam and Eve story. Two characters that aren't even mentioned outside of Genesis in the Tanakh, but still tying this whole conversation right back to the Garden of Eden and humanity's origins. And this is just one example. The idea that the ancient Judeans filled in some of the blanks of their own supposedly recently rediscovered religion by Hilkiah with Babylonian Sumerian practices is not a matter of theory. It's fact. It happened. With all of this, one thing is abundantly clear there's more to the Tanakh and its story of humanity's beginnings than we're oft led to believe. Perhaps we need to look more at these Sumerian creation stories to find the answers about how the Garden of Eden fits into the narrative of the origins of our human enterprise. And we'll do just that in the next episode of the User Podcast. The User Podcast was made possible by The Knight Foundation Interplanetary Expeditions The Earth Cargo Service Sovereign Tech First University And with contributions from users like you. Thank you.